Welcome to Apologetics with Brian O'Connell, where in each episode, I answer difficult questions that confront Christianity. In our last episode, we looked at the arguments the people have made to attack the Bible's reliability. However, we saw that those attacks are based on outdated information. Those arguments are based on a time in history in which we did not have archaeological or manuscript evidence to support the claims of the Bible. However, in the last episode, we saw that over the past 170 years, an enormous amount of archaeological evidence has been discovered, which has confirmed the reliability of the Scripture. Unfortunately, I was only able to mention a few of the archaeological discoveries that had been made. In this episode, I will share several other discoveries which likewise have shown the Christian Bible to be reliable. For example, the next piece of archaeological evidence that I'm going to discuss is known as the Lakish Reliefs, which are on display at the British Museum. They were discovered in 1847 by English archaeologist Austin Henry Layard. Layard made his discovery when excavating King Sennacherib's palace in Nineveh, which is in present-day northern Iraq. The significance of these reliefs is that they show the attack on the Judean fortress by the Assyrians, which is recorded in 2 Kings chapter 18, verse 13, and 2 Kings chapter 18, verse 17. Detailed images from the reliefs show Assyrian troops advancing with stone slingers and archers. Not only that, but you can see siege towers being wheeled up ramps to batter the city wall. And we know from other archaeological discoveries that Lachish was completely destroyed by the Assyrians in 701 BC. If you're unfamiliar with ancient Near Eastern history, the city of Lachish was an incredibly important city. In fact, according to the dictionary of the ancient Near East, Lachish was second only to Jerusalem in regional importance. Alfred Horth points out in his book Archaeology in the Old Testament that Sennacherib was so proud of that victory that nearly 70 linear feet of wall reliefs commemorating his assault on the city of Lachish were found at Nineveh. This room that Horth is talking about is known by archaeologists as Room 36 and was located in Sennacherib's southwest palace in Nineveh in what is seen as being a ceremonial suite. In fact, two-thirds of the walls of this suite were covered in these reliefs, which, as I said, depicted one event, the destruction of the city of Lachish. Scholars actually believe that the room that the reliefs were discovered in served as a waiting room for visiting dignitaries. It's also believed that the purpose of these reliefs was to strike fear in Sennacherib's enemies and to show them what would happen if they refused to submit to Sennacherib's reign. Now, the significance of these reliefs is that it further shows the accuracy and reliability of the Bible and the events that it records. The next artifact I want to discuss also relates to Sennacherib. This archaeological discovery is known as the Sennacherib Prism. It's also referred to as the Taylor Prism after the man who discovered the artifact. 
The Sennacherib prism is a six-sided baked clay prism that stands approximately 15 inches tall, and it was discovered at Nineveh in 1830 by Colonel R. Taylor. The prism tells the story of the invasion of the kingdom of Judah by Sennacherib in 701 BC, and it describes Sennacherib's siege of 46 fortified Judean cities. Not only that, but Sennacherib deported over 200,000 people. In case you're interested, King Sennacherib of Assyria is mentioned in 2 Kings chapters 18 and 19. For example, in 2 Kings chapter 18 verse 13, it says, Now in the 14th year of King Hezekiah, Sennacherib, king of Assyria, came up against all the fortified cities of Judah and seized them. Although Jerusalem was surrounded by this massive army, Isaiah prophesied that God would protect Jerusalem against attack by Sennacherib. We see this in 2 Kings chapter 19, Isaiah chapters 36 and 37, as well as in 2 Chronicles chapter 32. So going back to this prism, the reason I find this artifact so interesting is the way in which Hezekiah is mentioned on this prism. If you're unfamiliar with who Hezekiah was, he was one of Judah's kings. And as I mentioned, not only does Sennacherib talk about Hezekiah, but Sennacherib actually punks Hezekiah along with performing what I consider to be an ancient Near Eastern mic drop. For example, listen to what Sennacherib wrote on his prism. King Sennacherib wrote this. He said, I imprisoned Hezekiah in Jerusalem like a bird in a cage. In other words, Sennacherib saying that there was nothing Hezekiah could do because of my military might. It's interesting to note that although the prism does say that the Assyrians trapped Hezekiah in Jerusalem like a bird in a cage, nowhere does the prism say anything about the Assyrians actually conquering the city. Why would Sennacherib fill his palace walls with reliefs bragging about how he had destroyed Lachish, but not mention anything about Jerusalem? As I mentioned earlier, Lachish is generally regarded as the second most important city of Judah behind Jerusalem. If the destruction of Lachish resulted in a whole room being decorated to commemorate that military feat, then destroying Jerusalem would have been the ultimate victory. Not only that, but in the ancient world, a military victory showed that the god of the conquering nation was superior to the nation that was being conquered. And we see examples of this throughout the Old Testament. For example, the plagues of Egypt, or the Ark of the Covenant causing the pagan god to continue to fall, or other examples. So, by destroying Jerusalem, the Assyrians would have shown the ancient world that Sennacherib and his god were mightier than Israel and their god. As I mentioned earlier, the prism states that Sennacherib destroyed Lachish and surrounded Jerusalem. So then, we should ask ourselves, what took place 
that would cause Sennacherib to stop his attack on Jerusalem and return home. The Bible tells us what caused Sennacherib to return home to Nineveh. For example, in 2 Kings chapter 19, verses 35 to 36, we read this. Then it happened that night that the angel of the Lord went out and struck 185,000 in the camp of the Assyrians. And when the men rose early in the morning, behold, all of them were dead. So Sennacherib, king of Assyria, departed and returned home and lived in Nineveh. In the book Archaeology in the Old Testament, Unger writes that the destruction of Sennacherib's army, which was besieging Jerusalem, by divine intervention, offers an adequate reason why the king never returned to the region of Palestine. Sennacherib's own records, moreover, give ample evidence that he never took Jerusalem. Had he done so, he would not have been silent on so great an achievement. Since he was unable to take the capital city of Judah, as the Bible indicates, he made as good a story out of the siege as possible, and reported that he had shut up poor Hezekiah like a bird in a cage. Actually, Hezekiah was reposing quite safely in his cage. The last artifact I want to address in this episode is the Cyrus Cylinder that was found in 1879 in Babylon, which is in present-day Iraq. The Cyrus Cylinder is a 9-inch long clay cylinder, and it describes King Cyrus's victory over Babylon. But even more significant, and the reason I'm mentioning this archaeological find, is that this cylinder shows that Cyrus had a policy in which he released captive people and allowed them to return to their homelands. Now, you may be asking yourself why the Cyrus Cylinder is so important for our discussion on the reliability of Scripture. Well, the reason the discovery is so important is that it provides another example of fulfilled prophecy. For example, if you recall from a couple episodes ago where I discussed predictive prophecy, I mentioned Isaiah's prophecy in Isaiah chapter 44, verse 28, where Isaiah wrote, It is I who says of Cyrus, He is my shepherd, and he will perform all my desire. And he declares of Jerusalem, She will be built, and of the temple, your foundation will be laid. If you recall from that episode, I pointed out that the significance of Isaiah mentioning Cyrus was that Cyrus hadn't even been born. In fact, as I said, when Isaiah wrote this prophecy, not only had Cyrus not been born, but the Assyrians were just beginning to come onto the scene, which, as you know from history, they later became the world's first superpower. After the Assyrians came the Babylonians, and after the Babylonians came the Persians, and it was under Persian rule that Cyrus was king. So here, in this verse, Isaiah the prophet is looking 150 years into the future. He's looking past the Assyrians, past the Babylonians, to the time of the Persians, and he mentions Cyrus by name. Not only that, but he mentions that Cyrus will shepherd God's people and have them rebuild the temple of God 
which this cylinder proves that this prophecy was fulfilled. Another prophecy that relates to the decree found on the Cyrus Cylinder comes from the prophet Jeremiah. Before I read from Jeremiah, let me give you a little background. When Jeremiah made his prophecy, the Babylonians had overthrown the Assyrians and were now the new superpower in the ancient Near East. So now listen to what Jeremiah wrote. In Jeremiah chapter 25, verses 11 and 12, Jeremiah wrote this. He said, This whole land will be a desolation and a horror, and these nations will serve the king of Babylon 70 years. Then it will be when the 70 years are completed, I will punish the king of Babylon and that nation, declares the Lord, for their iniquity and the land of the Chaldeans, and I will make it in everlasting desolation. Later in his book, in chapter 29, verse 10, Jeremiah wrote this. He says, For thus says the Lord, When seventy years have been completed for Babylon, I will visit you and fulfill my good word to you to bring you back to this place. Did you catch that? God just told his people through Jeremiah, that they were going to be in captivity for 70 years. Not only that, but that after the 70 years, the Babylonians would be punished, which he did through King Cyrus and the Persians. But even more significant is that God told his people in Jeremiah chapter 29, verse 10, that after the 70 years, he would bring them back to their homeland. And we see in the scriptures and in the Cyrus Cylinder that God fulfilled these prophecies made by Isaiah and Jeremiah. In case you're wondering where these events take place in the Bible, the release of the Jews by King Cyrus is recorded in Ezra chapter 1 verse 1 and verse 3. For example, in Ezra chapter 1 verse 1 and verse 3 it says this, in verse 1, Now in the first year of Cyrus king of Persia, in order to fulfill the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he sent a proclamation throughout all his kingdom and also put into writing saying, and then skipping down to verse three, it reads this. It says, whoever there is among you of all his people, may his God be with him. Let him go up to Jerusalem, which is in Judah, and rebuild the house of the Lord, the God of Israel. He is the God who is in Jerusalem. Merrill Unger points out in his book, Archaeology in the Old Testament, that the significance of this archaeological find is that it is in full agreement with the royal edict as recorded in the Bible and shows that Cyrus reversed the inhumane policy of deporting whole populations practiced by the Assyrians and the Babylonian conquerors. In other words, the Cyrus Cylinder verifies the account of the Bible. Not only that, but as I just said, it acts as strong evidence for fulfilled predictive prophecy. Now, throughout this episode, I've shown through several archaeological discoveries that the people, places, and events that skeptics and scholars once rejected as being nothing more than folklore are now known to be real. 
However, if you notice, I only presented archaeological finds that relate to the Old Testament. Are there discoveries that support the events of the New Testament? What about the question regarding whether or not the biblical manuscripts are accurate? Is there any evidence that the manuscripts that we have today were accurately copied? Come back next time as we answer these questions. That's all the time that we have for today. Come back next time as we look at the archaeological evidence for the New Testament and extra-biblical sources to see if they support the claims of the Bible. Is the Bible just a book of fairy tales? Or is there evidence outside of the Bible that proves its reliability? Come back next time to find out. God bless.